My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Hello, my friends and listeners. This is Aaron Odom from Sheridan, Wyoming, and Trident Theater coming to you for another episode of Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. Hey, gang, if you're listening to this right now, and it is before July 29th, 2022, I know you've probably heard the ads, but I've got a live episode coming up on July 29th, 2022, and it will be streaming to the US, UK, and Canada. So, I'm going to be focusing a lot of my attention on that for the next few episodes. So what I'm doing here for the next couple, just through the rest of the July 2022, is I've got a couple ideas for mini-sodes. And uh, right away, I contacted some of my uh, prior guests. And uh, oh, my God, as soon as I reached out, he uh, said, hey, can you do this little episode? He's like, absolutely. And so (laughs) coming back to us... My guest from episode 20, Private Lives 1983, this is producer Brand Burtwistle. Hello, Brand. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me, buddy. My listeners, uh, I do have to let you know uh, that uh, I think Brand's cat hates me. Uh, (laughs) Before we got on this to record, Brand stood up and he goes, hold on. he hates me, dude. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the cat just uh, took a giant shit in Brand's house and uh, Brand had to uh, load up some incense so we could uh, carry on without him gagging. I I figure all your... What, what do you call them? Euripidites? What are you? Yeah, there we go. I've, I've never had the <laughs> name you're, before. You're, okay. Euripidites. They are. <laughs> nobody wants to hear the. Wah, wah, like, oh! <laughs> and and uh, listeners, if you do remember episode 20, uh, in the middle of the episode, we're talking about Liz Taylor and Richard Burton and how disgusting they were. And the cat is behind Brand puking on his floor. <laughs> So, so I don't think we're going to be able to record anymore without your cat doing something. We just have to plan for that. I'm looking for him right now, man. They're probably doing it already. Oh, man. Well, Brand, uh, be- before, uh, before we get too much into this, you have had quite a busy uh, year so far. You just got done yeah. uh, uh, filming a, a major production you're trying to launch here. So what's, yeah. what's that all about? Yeah, we're in post right now. We're almost, we're, we're getting close to locking locking our cut on uh on a feature that i shot uh 
we started filming in December and we, we finished in February, uh, filmed Damn. in Oklahoma, o- Oklahoma. So I was in Oklahoma city for, for the better of three months, which by the way, I've, I've been to 48 States. I've been all around the world. Oklahoma city has the best food of anywhere I've ever been. No and kidding. I mean, it's kind of a bang in the town. I came back having to like, <laughs> work <laughs> off my three months in Oklahoma City. But man, the farm to table that that like local farmer, good good meat, good vegetables. We I had the best ramen. I live on ramen row. Like I, right, I, okay. I have the most incredible ramen within two miles of my house is just a, a strip of like ramen shops, like the best ramen and you know in all of LA. There's one ramen shop. You go, it has a two-hour wait in Oklahoma City. Oh, my God. It's, the food was awesome. So, anyway, I digress. Uh, <laughs> I, I I had the pleasure of, um, I was co-producer on this film uh, in my company, The Brand Productions. Uh, yeah. yeah. We, we did a film called The Line um, with a director named Ethan Berger. Um Okay. really great he he wrote wrote and directed the script just really fantastic script kind of uh examining toxic white male masculinity within the fraternal system and what are you talking uh, about? What, there's i don't fraternities understand there's none of that uh, there's yeah. none of that there you don't know anything yes. i don't know we had a rock star cast. I mean, just absolute. Yeah. Like, I could, if I sat and just like listed every single person that's in the here, I'll, I'm going to do it. Let's, let's see. <laughs> I, I'm going to be an asshole because I'm going to forget somebody. But like, just just to fire these off. All right. Yeah. From bring it from on the older side, we have um, John Malkovich, Denise oh, Richards, uh, Sherry O'Terry, Scoot McNary. Then we've got Alex Richards. We have Hallie Bailey. Uh, we have two oh, of the yeah, kids yeah, from yeah. Euphoria. We have Vangus Cloud and Austin Abrams. Both are fucking off, awesome. We have uh, Lewis Pullman. We have Graham Patrick Martin. Like I could go on. Like like wow. we have. And, and weren't you telling me Alex Wolf was in it too? Well, and Bo Mitchell, man. Like it's such a great ensemble. Every yeah. single performance every single person in the movie is a rock star and because each one of them brought it dude you're gonna lose your mind when you see this the performances in this are top notch that's that's to say the least that they're top notch so the line when are we gonna see this so i mean we're we're editing everything for the festivals and and we'll go from there dude that's so amazing. That's so amazing. So my friends and listeners, look for it coming up in the next several months sometime. The line, partially from the brand productions. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I want to go ahead and get into this thing today so I can actually kind of try to keep this as something of a mini-sode. <laughs> Good luck. Okay. But um, so you and I, we did theater in high school, in, in college together. And um and high school not together but yeah not together but we've done it uh and i uh, (laughs) i found out about this story just this last week and it was i was at a museum with my kid and there was like this pegboard that had like flip over cards and you flip a card over and it would tell you some uh, strange crazy fact 
This one, holy shit, Brand. Uh, get ready <laughs> to pick your jaw up off the floor. But um, I sent you a, a little bit of a thing to ponder over today as uh, we were getting ready for this. And so the question I'm going to ask you, as I like to start these with a question, is how has your experience with Shakespeare influenced and or enriched your life? That's, that's a great it's a great question because i i think there's so many ways that are way more subtle than i had thought about until you'd asked this right through my experience through and i've had a lot of shakespeare experience through like oh okay. I great shakespeare in high school i studied shakespeare i have i have a an antique shakespeare collection right down here mm. that's that's over 100 years old from my grandma i have like three or four complete shakespeare collections as we do goddamn theater as we, kids as one i probably right? need one more books and books and books <laughs> <laughs> but first off it gave me a whole understanding of the english language and Shakespeare was always talking in double entendres and, and yeah, there's right? always crazy, <laughs> crazy subtext. It's it's so deep. And and beyond the fact that I, I have a deep love of music and there's the whole iambic pentameter. And so mm. there's the whole uh here's here's something about Shakespeare. When I learned this, this I thought this was a ultra fascinating way. This is from Andrew Jarvis from the Royal Shakespeare Company. Shakespeare was such an artist that the rhythmic the iambic pentameter if it's in place if it's if it's the da 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 yes right if it's if it's within those beats then everything that they're saying is normal yeah if they're emotionally distressed that heartbeat that rhythm gets mm -hmm. out of sync yes and he yes. wrote that rhythm and he wrote the the distress and the people's emotionality into the musicality of their verbiage and that's such an incredibly deep intelligent thing that's so cool that that and I know that's not directly applicable to my life, except in that, like, I now still work in merging video and music and like. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and not only that, you, you were just talking about this film you just finished and, and yeah. being able to recognize the synergy between people and the mixing oh, yeah. of, of different energies and stuff like that to make a good final product, which yeah. there. I mean, there we go. So awesome. Um, off the top of your head, if you had a way to pay Shakespeare back for what he's given to you, what do you think you'd do? Ah. <laughs> I'd take him to a hip hop festival, man. Oh, dude. Oh, my God. He would so dig that. That's what I would do. I, he that's would that's so who's speaking that. in the, in the, like, in the modern tongue and and speaking in the metaphors oh. and 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 truly are like the lyrical poetry of our day is hip-hop mm -hmm. that's where he would lose his shit mc billy shakes i love it i mean i i think the other cool thing would to be like show him like 10 things i hate about you or show him right. some other art that his art inspired to let him oh. know that 
that he, he had this impact yes. through time that, you know. Yes. Um, yeah. That, okay. I, I think those would be the two things that I would do to, to say, hey, thank you. Amazing. Here's, here's how your art did it, and here's how our new art is doing it. That is a perfect segue into where we're going today. So as you've said, we've gotten a lot from Shakespeare over the years. Besides the vast influence of his collected works in which he is attributed to having introduced up to 1,700 new words to the English language, Shakespeare has been an inspiration to life and culture worldwide. Shakespeare has inspired countless works that have added to the health of Western culture, particularly in America. Without him, we wouldn't have had Moby Dick, a number of operas, many popular musicals, and much, much, much more. Here's a fun little nugget for you. Do you know who uh, kept a completed works on his nightstand? Nelson Mandela. Oh. While he was in prison. Interesting. <laughs> yep. And he would often read from it to his fellow inmates to inspire them. Here's a quote. He said, Shakespeare always seems to have something to say to us. Ah, we're, you want to go deep, buddy? Like, let's go deep. Like, those are great words. Aren't they, like, aren't they something? Yeah. Uh, uh, I used to take acting class with this genius of a fucking man, Art Wolf. You have some qualities of art, actually. There, you oh. got this like the, yeah, art directed the pilot of Seinfeld, art oh directed God. the pilot of The Wonder Years. Uh, he discovered oh, Sean Penn man. and he put him in his first play on Broadway. Dude, art was really good friends with Shel Silverstein. Okay, and okay, Shel wrote plays. Yeah, art had 600 unpublished plays from shell silverstein that we used to do in acting class oh like God. like this dude ah, this dude was was genius and one of the things that i remember so clearly from his from him and i think that this is uh that you, you can see this through shakespeare right the words on the page are one thing yeah right right but what you're saying what you mean, that's a whole other thing. And you can you can say those same words and you can mean anything in the world. Absolutely. You, if Absolutely. your heart is yep. thinking whatever, if you are thinking whatever, that's what's going to register. And that's why Shakespeare's timeless. You can put it in any period. You can put it in all these different situations. And, and it works in all these different ways is because... It's what you're saying. And so we used to, mm -hmm. when we first got into arts acting class, we would do these monologues. And then he would have us, he'd stop us mid monologue and he'd have us start over and he'd go, okay, do it like you're selling a car. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I love do this. it like the person that you're talking to has your brother held captive. Do this like you're, yeah, and he would just switch yeah, yeah, it yeah, yeah. and you'd use the same words. And the whole time you're conveying something completely different. And that's part of the power of Shakespeare, I think, is okay. that, that so, it, it, it speaks to you wherever you're at. Right. Okay. So, so we've got this volume of works that is giving us a template. 
And really, that this is something that when I teach it and I'm teaching directing and I'm directing is like there is an unspoken contract between the playwright and the production crew doing that show that you're giving us the words and it's our job to interpret them. So you don't get to tell us exactly how to do everything all the time. Like yeah. um, one of the most powerful performances I saw was Benedict Cumberbatch's Hamlet. And the big okay. speeches that to, you know, uh, to be or not to be, uh, get thee to yeah. a nunnery, um, all of those things, he threw them away. It was hardly important to him. It was the stuff that was happening in between those where he wasn't just like focused on his, his issues that when he was reacting to other people, that's where he sunk his teeth in. And you're like, well, acting is reacting. Yeah, see, yeah, I love it. So, thank you. Art so, <laughs> we got this. Yeah, thank you, Art Wolf. Now, I appreciate the fact that you wanted to get really deep there because that's about as deep as we're going to go tonight. <laughs> because what I want to bring up is you have this guy who gave so much to the world that it seems unfair that we don't give back to him in some way. So over the years, a number of, of events have occurred with the bard in mind as inspiration. And many of them come in the form of naming things like buildings and structures, or people will name their children after characters or their pets or something like that, or perhaps use his quotes in motivational speeches. Yeah. But for as many successful commemorations to the bard that have happened over the years, I would suggest that there are just as many, if not more, who meant well, but their commemorations did not achieve the desired effect. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's meet, and I'm probably going to fuck up the pronunciation of this name. Let's meet <laughs> Eugene Schieflin. He's a German immigrant and pharmaceutical manufacturer who lived in New York City at the end of the 19th century. And from what I understand, he does have a street in New York named after him. Okay. Schieflin was also an avid lover of wildlife and belonged to several groups involved with wildlife preservation. One such group was the American Acclimatization Society. <laughs> Just the name of that. <laughs> Doesn't that sound so colonizer to you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're, the, we're the settlers. Yeah. The American Acclimatization Society, whose intent, <laughs> their intent was to enrich the environment of America and to make the, immig the immigration transition for new residents from Europe a lot easier. Okay. Well, that sounds nice. Okay. Right. Okay. At least they, they sound like they're, you know. Right, they got a good intent. You're trying to be groovy. Their method of doing this would be to release animals into the American wild that were native to Europe and had not previously been native to America. Oh, now it's not sounding as good. Keep going. <laughs> hold up, hold up. Oh, <laughs> we're bringing a Yeti over. Um, now, one of the easiest ways to do this would be to introduce new species of birds. Okay. okay, so like little little songbirds and stuff. And generally, this didn't really work too well as the birds did not have the evolutionary traits needed to survive in a new climate. So, you know, if you introduce okay. them, they fly around for a while, but they just can't get used to the environment. And so they all perish. However, two species introduced in this manner did flourish. One is the house sparrow and the other 
is the European starling. Oh. <laughs> and today, we're going to talk about the latter, the European starling, now known <laughs> as the common starling. Hey, good old starlings. The starlings, okay. Now, hey. for those of us who aren't familiar with ornithology or birds, um, <laughs> the best I knew before I read about this was that they were kind of pesky. Like, in some cases, they'll, like, make their nest on top of a chimney stack or something like that, and then the whole house fills up with smoke every time you, you know, light a fire or whatever. Thanks so a lot, like, starlings. Oh my God damn it, <laughs> fine, starlings! You know, <laughs> All right, so, back to, back to Eugene Schieflin and releasing these species into the wild. While almost no evidence in writing could be found as to why Schieflin chose specific species, in 1947, another wildlife enthusiast named Edwin Way Teal began what now can be considered a tall tale with his article, In Defense of the Pesky Starling. It's a Teal tale. Uh-huh. In this, Teal suggests that Schieflin had intentions to release into America every bird mentioned in Shakespeare. Why not? Yeah, why not? I mean, Absolutely. Let's go. Uh, you know, I mean, thank God he didn't know about ostriches or emus. Yeah. I kind of wish he would. Why don't right? we have those here as well? Okay. Hold on. You're, you're, you're going to love this. My guess here is that Schieflin told a bunch of people that this was his intent, but he never wrote it down anywhere, didn't journal it, didn't have it published. It was just common knowledge among his peers. And to be perfectly frank, this would be quite an ambitious task, considering that Shakespeare's works included mention of 600 different species of birds. Oh, my God. I know, right? So it's like, now I want to go back and read more plays and be like, okay, where did you mention this? Where did you mention this? Where did you mention this? Wait, 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 wait. Can, can we just pause for just a second? Uh-huh. Who the fuck knows 600 different species of birds? <laughs> Who, like... All right, I like I I I love Shakespeare. Uh huh. But that's like. I mean, to just be able to rattle that shit. There off. aren't even six hundred species. He's making shit up. <laughs> He's just like <laughs> the horn-crested willow nut. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. The three-footed booby. I don't know. Um, <laughs> So yeah, now you got me intrigued. No, go yeah. on. <laughs> okay. So regarding the Shakespeare line that inspired bringing the starling to America, we have the following yeah. from an article I read about the whole thing. In the late 1590s, Shakespeare noticed the mimicking av ability of the starling while writing Henry IV, Part One. The character Hotspur is contemplating driving King Henry nuts by having a starling repeat the name of Hotspur's brother-in-law, Mortimer whom Henry refuses to ransom out of a prisoner status. The line is, Nay, I'll have a starling shall be taught to speak nothing but Mortimer. Okay? So, got mentioned. Starling. Okay. Schieflin read that and went, well, we got to get a starling. Well, we got to drive everybody in the world crazy. Right. Right. Exactly. Like exactly. <laughs> so I guess it's actually somewhat ironic that the line is subtextually critical of Starlings. Yeah. I don't think that Schieflin thought that far ahead. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
The same article talked about the set of starlings that nested in the writer's tree near their yard, describing the bird's call as a song, if you can call it that, that the birds would offer this song incessantly and because of their burrowing habits ended up nearly killing the tree in which they took residence. Another like five-star review for this term. Let's bring them. Let's Let's bring them. Let's bring them. Let's bring them. Get me a suitcase of starlings. Yeah. Yeah. To the Americas, please. Yep. So in the fall of 1890, Schieffelin released 60 starlings into New York City Central Park. And as I said before, very often efforts such as these resulted in mass casualties in the released birds as they just usually couldn't take to the environment. Now, these starlings were released on a cold day in the fall when the weather was sleeting. Okay, Most figured that the starlings would fare just as well as previous flocks and would die off pretty quickly. However, the little birds found shelter under the eaves of the American Museum of Natural History, which is just east of the park. And to the surprise of many, they survived the winter. So, yes. go, yeah. little guys. Now, this inspired Schieffelin to acquire another 40 starlings in 1891 and release them. So the total count of starlings released by Schieffelin totaled 100. Now, perhaps Schieffelin didn't know too much about starlings being an amateur ornithologist and just being in positions on these different boards of these different societies. But starlings are actually a little better equipped to survive in many climates. And here's a big fat quote that I found. The protractor muscles of their beaks allow them to pry and to probe better than other birds. They can open their bills after pushing them into the soil, which allows them to forage for invertebrates easily and in drier areas. The starling's eyes have evolved to the narrow front of its face, giving it the perfect view for prying, Its binocular vision combined with its open bill probing ability means that starlings can find insects in colder climates better than other birds, which means that starlings do not have to migrate to warmer climates in winter, which means they can take the best nesting houses during the breeding season in spring. (laughs) Fuck you, other birds. Yeah, we figured this shit out. Yep, absolutely. Evolution, man, I mean. <laughs> I know, and you never see it coming. <laughs> Especially when somebody's like, oh, you evolved over there and we'll bring you over here? Come on. Come on. For the first six years since their release, the Starlings rarely left Manhattan. However, once they began to spread, it was discovered that almost no climate was uninhabitable to Starlings, as they were found in climates as diverse as both Alaska and Florida. Can't stop me now. <laughs> Can't stop me because I'm having a good time. Okay. Here's a quote. <laughs> By 1928, they were found as far west as the Mississippi. By 1942, they were in and California. They were, they were introduced in what, what year? 1890 and 1891. So in 30 years, they've gotten as far as the Mississippi. Okay. Uh-huh. By 1942, they were in California. Wow. <laughs> so so they were like, yeah, let's go. And by the mid 1950s, they numbered more than 50 million. I mean, these are like insect numbers. Continuing this quote, Schieffelin's mission had become more appropriate to a work of Hitchcock than of Shakespeare. 
Starlings are most often seen in large flocks and have been known to flock in groups of one million or more. Fake news. Fake news. <laughs> oh, plus they are omnivorous. As mentioned before, they will eat bugs, mites, and worms, but they will also eat most plants, which has proven incredibly taxing for those involved in agriculture. <laughs> Here's a quote. In a single day, a cloud of omnivorous starlings can gobble up to 20 tons of potatoes. What they don't eat, they defile with droppings. They are linked to numerous diseases, including histoplasmosis, a fungal lung ailment that afflicts agricultural workers, toxoplasmosis, especially dangerous to pregnant women, and Newcastle disease, which kills poultry, end quote. I hate them already. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And for me, personally, listeners, you probably- Do you deal with these? Oh, no, I don't necessarily because I'm not in agriculture, but check this out. So listeners who have listened regularly know that my dad just recently passed and he had a visual impairment his entire life caused by toxoplasmosis. Now, a lot of people will say that toxoplasmosis often associated with cat litter. So- don't get pregnant women around your cat litter, basically. But Brand's <laughs> looking over his shoulder, you little He's savage. coming for you too, man. Yeah. Like, look out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but my dad's family was a pretty agricultural family. So yeah. I'm like, I'm looking at this and I'm like, you sons of bitches. And his yeah. mom died a day after giving birth to him. And it was partly due to this. So like, oh, starlings, you are on my shit list. Speaking of agriculture, another way that starlings affect agriculture centers around dairy farming. Apparently, starlings will unknowingly sabotage dairy output by eating grain from dairy cows' troughs. Okay, now this, this can be expected to some extent from most, you know, free birds. However, starlings are clever enough to eat the, quote, good grains that provide the most nutrition to the cows. So when dairy cows have less good grains, their milk output becomes less and less. Starlings are kind of like human beings. (laughs) (laughs) There was something I read that was like, it's absolutely perfect that we brought over starlings and they treated this country just like we did. Oh, God. Okay. Even even more to that point, not only that, starlings are bullies. (laughs) America, fuck yeah. Yeah. Now, remember that quote earlier that stated that they were able to take their pick of nesting sites just because they didn't need to migrate? Okay. Well, another feature of the starling is that it's just a lot more muscular than most other birds its size and, frankly, will chase other birds out of their homes. <laughs> Again, evolution is a bitch, bro. Like, like you're six foot three. That would be like Chris Hemsworth coming to your door right now and being like, "This is mine now," and just throwing you out. I mean, good on him. <laughs> good he's on him. Better look. He's better looking than I am too. So you know. now, <laughs> some have suggested that this bullying has led to native species being forced out of their natural habitats, such as the eastern bluebird, 
which is the state bird for both New York and Missouri, and they are rarely seen in their home states anymore. Hey, Brand, do you know what bird strike is? Dude, I, I was looking for some kind of clever response in there. <laughs> I just picture little birds with like, more seed less cats right bird union bird union (laughs) no 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 bird strike (laughs) is when a flock of birds hit a plane while it is in mid-flight oh god and it brings the plane down wow On October 4th, 1960, a small passenger plane carrying 72 people took off from Logan Airport in Boston. Just seconds later, once the plane had reached a height of 120 feet, a flock of approximately 10,000 starlings hit the plane. All four engines went dead, and the plane plummeted almost vertically into Boston Harbor. Of the 72 aboard, only 10 survived, so the death toll was 62 which included the pilot and co-pilot. Assholes again. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Sterling. (laughs) Fuck those Sterlings. Oh, yeah. Oh, hey, check this one out. Um, Almost two weeks after that plane crash in in Boston in 1960, another pilot tried to take off from the same airport and was hit with another Starling bird strike. Now, while he didn't leave the ground, and even though the Starlings barely weighed two ounces apiece, the pilot stated that it sounded like he was under machine gun fire. I mean, two ounces is is pretty heavy. Like, if it's just, <laughs> well, like, and if it's if it's that many, mm-hmm. and at what speed? That's the other thing, right? Right. Like, how at what speed yeah. do you have to get a plane off the ground? And it has to be in the hundreds of miles per hour. <sighs> yeah, crazy. Yeah. So, so. Thanks a lot, Shakespeare. Thanks a lot. <laughs> it, literally, though, like one crazy person listening to the words of some beautiful words. Mm-hmm. And going, I want to, I, I, I come to America and I want to honor this Shakespeare, which is the birdies. Um, it's the types of birds from all over the world. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we do about this starling problem? Well, apparently the starling is actually protected from mass killing by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918. So mass birdie genocide is not an option. (laughs) Why? What do we have our guns for? (laughs) (laughs) I can make a really, really dark joke about that, but I'm not going to. (laughs) Despite this legal blockade against avian genocide, a lot of measures have been taken to quell the spread of the starling threat. In Washington, D.C., the little fellas got so bad that the White House installed an outdoor speaker that only played owl calls. Didn't work. Interesting. In 1948, when balloons and inflatable owls didn't work, itching powder was tried. So they'd spray itching powder on places that they like to squawk and... and Does itching powder for people work on birds as well? Uh... No, it didn't seem to do anything. Uh, The police of DC installed mechanical hawks, like they'd be little robotic fixtures that would sit on light poles and other vantage points. So it would make it look like a hawk might be up there, but just kind of moving around. Failed. And some of the most prestigious buildings in our nation's capital were fitted with 
live electrical wires so the little squabs would be shocked and deterred away from going there. So what happened because of that? They just roosted in buildings that didn't have the wires. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, ouch, that sucks. Let's not go there. Okay. Uh, I don't want to go over there. By the 60s, apparently a legal loophole had been found in Nevada where a federal government experiment treated the starling problem with poison pellets. California did the same thing, and from 1964 to 1967, estimated 9 million starlings were killed. Wow. But when you're talking about they were in the 50 millions as of 1950, you can only imagine how much bigger they spread. You kill nine of them, that's hardly even a fraction. And you got to love... All of a sudden, you have 9 million... Sterling carcasses that are poison. That <laughs> if, like, if something else is going to eat it, like a fox comes around, it's like, oh, it's sterling, oh, dead fox. Like, <laughs> they're just watching all the wildlife like fall from the trees. Like, uh, that didn't work <laughs> out. Yeah. The circle oh. of life. Yep. Yes. And hey, speaking of California and great decisions that California makes, around that same time, <laughs> from 1964 to 1967. The California Department of Agriculture captured a bunch of starlings and gave them lethal doses of cobalt-60, which is radioactive, and then they were released back into the wild. Why not? (laughs) We know you guys like to mate. Why don't you go mate with an irradiated bird pee-pee? And you know that you you know what the most incredible thing is that went through some fucking crazy chain of command. Like, yeah, right? There were right. there were multiple people that were like, "Yeah, I think that's bullshit," but let's fucking do what he says. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's that's almost like the beginning of a Godzilla movie. We we've irradiated these things, and now they've grown. We'll call it. We'll call it birds. Hey, the birds. That's I I like the sound of that. Hey. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's been done before either, but that one didn't really work. And I think probably the most inventive and my favorite method that somebody came up with of dealing with the starling problem. Birds with freaking laser beams on their heads. That's it. God damn it. (laughs) Trains. Let's get some crows. And we'll now in 1931, the U S department of agriculture printed recipes and cooking techniques oh, for starling breasts. God, no. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Although it was noted that some people may not appreciate the gamey flavor of the meat, even after preparation. <laughs> Just the guy, the, and that that also had to go through a chain of command. You know, there's just some guy going, well, we could eat him. <laughs> hey, man, why not? I eat raccoon off the side of the road. That sounds delicious to me. You just rub some gunpowder on it and put it on the grill and it sizzles right up. Ooh. Oh. Charcoal possum, man. (laughs) Sweet. And garnish it with some sterling gravy. Starling. (laughs) Oh. As of today, it is estimated that there are more than 200 million starlings across North America. Holy shit. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's the story. <laughs> we now have 200 million members of one of the most invasive and noxious species that this country has ever seen because of one man's love of Shakespeare. <laughs> I would not have, have personally honored Shakespeare in such a way. What? I, I, 
I thought I thought things we were talking about earlier were pretty good ideas. They were uh, good. They were pretty good ideas. I mean, mm-hmm. these irritating, unattractive, annoying voiced, everywhere birds. Like the only thing that I can think that nature actually gave back to Shakespeare with starlings was murmurations. Do you know what I'm talking about? Murmurations. That's when you get a big flock of birds. And they're just kind of flying around each other, and they're they look like a cloud, and Almost they're like an amoeba. Oh, yes, in my hometown there is an old flour mill that has been abandoned for years, but it's uh, several stories tall, and at the very top of it, like there's just kind of a little walkway that you know workers could get get in and look at the, look down at the silos and stuff. It is now filled with fucking birds, and. I, I'm sure they're starlings and every now and then I'll go get lunch at a place near that and just sit there and watch them and just see that absolute beauty that they can contribute to the world. Awesome. While the rest of their species is destroying crops and <laughs> chasing off indigenous species and <laughs> being just pretty much a menace to the ecology. Or are they evolving you know, are they forcing, mm. you know, here's another way to think about it, right? Yes, it seems invasive at first, but also maybe because they are further progressed that they are forcing the other native species to evolve in a quicker manner to continue to exist alongside these more highly evolved birds that have come into their their place that's some uh interesting darwinian theory there brand uh hey man popped <laughs> into my head right now like that <laughs> oh that, and yeah th- that is interesting though right like what a crazy thing <laughs> a guy well, was just like i like shakespeare and he mentioned these birds and i want to bring them to america so let's see how they do well they did just fine people do weird things when they interpret like they go, this person's talking to me. This musician's talking to me. This actor's talking to me. Oh, Shakespeare he's... told me. <laughs> <laughs> ah! <laughs> oh, man. Well, Brand, there we go. Starlings in America. Thank you, Shakespeare. From 100, 100. to 200 million. In just over 100 years. They figured it out. Next, they're going to be making little spaceships to go, like, leave their species on other fucking planets. They're, they're going to. Too quick. Man, man and Starling are going to combine to become one. In order to survive, we must join forces. The singularity is here. Oh, man. Okay. Woo. Hey, Brand, that was a super fun time. I hope we can get this uh, another mini-sode or another episode so- out sometime. Oh, I, I wanted to challenge you. I told you my live episode is coming up, and I'm not telling you what it's about. You got to guess? We, we just spent an hour talking about starlings. I, I know. What to guess them. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Guess you'll see with everybody else here in a few weeks. All right. Brand, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. 
I'm going to go ahead and sign off now. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, ending another episode of Euripides, Humanities, a theater history podcast. I will get back to you in another two weeks with a new episode, and I will see you at intermission.